You know, sometimes there are moments that seem like they should be remembered for all time. Events that we should honour and recall over the passing of the centuries, cherishing them as defining fragments of our identity, shards of our collective history that stand out and should be recalled, either fondly or with regret, but either way, remembered. Because these are the moments which define a place or a people's, define us as to who we are and what we stand for. That definition we can pass on to our children and them to theirs, it becomes part of the composition of a nation, a letter in the sentence we construct to answer the question, who are we? This chapter is about one of those moments, now, in the year 1016. Now with all the events in the ages to come, and especially with the events in just 50 years time, in the year 1066, I believe we've allowed hindsight cloud our minds. Generations of historians, led by a veritable legion of eminent Victorians, have helped fabricate the creation mythos the British have told one another. And this has come to define the year 1066 as the most important date in the collective history of this nation and of the city that was to become its capital. So, allow me to say, I completely disagree. For me, 50 years earlier stands as a far more important moment in the story of this land. In 1016, just like in 1066, England fell to a foreign conqueror. But the story of that year was totally different from what came when William turned up. It was in 1016, and not 1066, that England properly fought for their freedom. There wasn't just one symbolic battle. In 1016, they were led by a brilliant, charismatic warrior king, the true inheritor of Alfred the Great, Edmund Ironsides. Unlike 1066, where they were led by the clammy grandson of a pirate, a usurper called Harold Godwinson. When Edmund Ironside rode into battle, supposedly he carried a sword steeped in the blood of this nation, a quasi-mythic blade given to him by his older brother and supposedly once owned by the mighty Mercian king Offa. When Harold Godwinson rode into battle, it was to deal with a rebellious brother and the consequences of the lies, manipulation and murder his father had inflicted upon the land. The one similarity between 1066 and 1016 is that in both cases, London was to become a beacon of defiance to the invader, a symbol of resistance. But while in 1066 it had inflicted the only defeat William the Conqueror faced in his conquest, and its flame of liberty was little more than a damp ember, to be honest. Here in 1016, it did more. London was to endure siege and many direct onslaughts. Those ancient walls were to be stained red with the blood of attackers and defenders. It was this year, 1016, that was to be one of its highest highs, and it was to be a beacon across the entire land. Now, I don't blame anybody that they emphasise 1066 over 1016. I mean, it's over a thousand years have passed, and be unrealistic for me to assume that people should remember events so far away. But in lieu of meekly submitting to the unearned emphasis placed upon 1066, allow me then, humble narrator, 
to submit to you the tale of the most important year in the history of London since Alfred moved its location behind those great Roman walls. Hi, my name is Saul and this is chapter 34 of the story of London. The Great Siege of London Town. The year 1016, as we covered last chapter, was one of enormous confusion and political chaos. You had Canute, the Danish prince, openly seeking to usurp the powers that be in England and invade and subjugate the English nation. You had his opposite and equal, Ethelred of England, the aged king and by now sickly man. And you had Ethelred's son, Edmund, the Ironsides, trying to mount a desperate defence against Canute while at odds with his own father. England was broken, on the verge of falling again, but the fight was far from over. Edmund had summoned the Fjord of England, the great national army, to face down this Danish prince. And when he'd done so, his own father had answered the call, marching from London with his army, but when the king got there, he soon left, either because he feared assassins or because he was old and going on campaign would have been too much for him. Because of this, the feud failed and Edmund was unable to make any kind of stand against Canute in Warwickshire. But Ironsides was not cut from the cloth of many of his peers. He seemed possessed by a strong sense of resistance and perseverance. And literally, having failed in his original plan A and now this plan B, concocted a plan C. He rode north and raised the whole of the forces of Northumbria against Canute. And so the resistance continued. For the people in London, the news of the war so far to the north would have been both worrying but also relieving. At least the war was not at their walls. Again. But I cannot help feel that, as loyal as London was to its King Ethelred, they liked the cut of the jib of this Edmund. He resisted. He fought. He had that intransigent quality that London seemed to also exemplify. This was their kind of leader. Meanwhile, the war in England was turning into a conflict of manoeuvrability and strategy. Canute realised that with the armed forces of Northumbria now marshalled against him, that meant Northumbria itself was without men to protect it. So moved his army there and began raiding it. Ildemen Uhtred of Northumbria immediately retreated back and offered his surrender along with his men, which crippled the forces of Edmund, and, but again the young Aetheling responded to the failure of this plan C by coming up to a plan D, and I'll talk about that in a second. Canute, for his part, executed Ildemen Uhtred of Northumbria along with others who were with him, like Thurkettle of East Anglia, and he placed his right-hand man, Erik Harkonnesson, in charge of the entire north of England and Ildeman of Northumbria. So Northumbria was now under the direct rulership of the Norwegian, Erik, while Mercia was ruled by the treasonous, having just swapped over to the Danish side, Idrik Streona. The noose was closing in on England, and on London especially. 
London's position as the great fortress of King Ethelred was by now absolutely cemented. Numerous indeed had been the times they had faced and defeated these Scandinavians. If you remember, a few episodes ago I described the whole conflict between the Vikings and the residents of London as kind of a sports game, and the current score stands at 7-7, and it is clear in 1016 that the final act was beginning, that Edmund Aetheling, seeking a plan D, now decided he needed England fully working together. He travelled from the north to London, to his father. What would have London made of this young warrior prince? By all accounts, he made a positive impression. His story so far had proven one great truth about the nation, it would be easy to assume how the last 30 years or so had seen the degeneration of a country from its mighty powerhouse it had once been. And yet, Edmund's ability to raise army after army proved that the mechanisms of the state initiated by Alfred the Great were still in place, that England was still a formidable military superpower. It had just simply lacked the men willing to lead it. While Edmund was in London, the residents may have heard that Canute was leaving the north and that he was seeking to end this war. But as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, Canute, quote, then went southward another way, all by west, till the whole army came before Easter to the ships, unquote. Now, you may remember from last episode, I mentioned that Canute had left his fleet somewhere over by the Bristol Channel. And this, when they heard that Canute was going there, probably would have alarmed London quite a lot. Had Canute just sought to take on London overland, marching his forces and the Mercians under the traitor Strayona, that would have been one thing. But the fact that Canute was going all the way back to where he'd left his fleet, over and the Bristol Channel, meant he wasn't just taking his army to London. He was taking his fleet. This was going to be an attack via the River Thames. Had London still got ships at this stage, or had Strayona's defection, which had brought, if you can remember, 40 ships over to Canute, seen the mainstay of the London fleet also taken? We cannot know the logistics of this event. But we also know that the end game was approaching fast. Both Canute and Edmund were active, and they knew basically what they had to do to win. However, there is a hint that the weather wasn't ideal for campaigning at first, uh, both men were ready to commence operations instantly, it seemed, but they did not. Fighting really didn't get going until that summer. Maybe it was just the logistics of war that causes delay, or maybe it was exhaustion. We do know, however, that on April 23rd, 1016, aged about 50, we think, King Ethelred of England died, somewhere in London. The king was dead. Ethelred of England Ethelred Undrid. He's generally described as the most useless king of England. Now, there do exist a small cabal of those who claim he was unjustly smeared, that his reputation is undeserved. I'm not one of those men. I feel he was a lousy king in all ways. But he wasn't the worst, far, far from it. And his failures, while many, do obscure the fact there were some things he was actually quite good at. He was a very crafty and, at times, masterful diplomat. 
and he could also strike boldly and surprisingly, especially in the realms of foreign policy. But he was also venal, probably paranoid, petulant and vicious. Craven is a good word for Aethelred, I think. Yet, I'm actually pausing the narrative just for a second to eulogise Aethelred for one simple reason. He joins a list of those people who changed the story of London forever. It was in his long reign that London became the centre of the English monetary system. And it was also in his reign that London's role as the centre of the English fleet was also established. So for these reasons alone, the late king is named a significant but honourable Londoner. But with his passing, we do not end the story or the war. Suffice to just add, Ethelred was buried in St Paul's Cathedral, which, as we can see, since 1010 had clearly become the place to be buried. So what happens then? Well, for London, what happened next was very simple. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that when Ethelred died, quote, after his decease, all the peers that were in London and the citizens chose Edmund King, unquote. The Baguara, the citizens of London, to them, Edward would be their king as Ethelred had been before. But this was no small act. Another source at the time states, quote, the bishops, abbots, ealdermen, and nobles of England assembled together and by general agreement elected Canute as their lord and king, and coming to him at Southampton, renounced and repudiated in his presence all the descendants of King Ethelred." So, it looks like the majority of the nobles of England were choosing Canute, and those who were still around in London and the people of London had chose Edmund Ironsides. There is a tradition that states that Edmund's support within London wasn't as secure as it seemed, that there had been a lively debate, that sides had been picked, and there is even hints that violence was used. I mean, we don't know for sure. We can only possibly speculate that support for Canute in London would have been highly unlikely. He had no link to the city. The city had happily defied his father, no matter what, and honestly, I can't see it. I could see an argument for a faction of pragmatists reasoning, you know, are we sure we want to do this again? But given London's support for Edmund was wholehearted, even when he wasn't there, I think London was acting like a kingdom unto itself. The Kingdom of London had chosen its king, Edmund Ironsides, and the rest of England would just have to come to terms with it. There was a price to pay for doing this, however. Canute was not blind nor stupid. He saw what London was doing. He understood what London was doing. And as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Then came the ships to Greenwich, about the gang days, and within a short interval went to London, unquote. Canute stopping off or basing himself in Greenwich, for me, is significant. We know Thorkill at all was fighting for him, and Greenwich had long been his preferred base of operations. And now Thorkill's great knowledge was to be utilised for Canute's advantage. London was the crucial bastion of resistance towards Canute and his father. It had to be neutralised. And 
Thorkill had been based in London, so if anybody could come up with a way of taking out the city, it was expected to be him. What then followed sounds extraordinary. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says Canute, Thorkill and his forces, quote, sunk a deep ditch on the south side and dragged their ships to the west side of the bridge, unquote. Thorkill knows better than just to attack London Bridge, so he convinces Canute uh, to basically create a canal and drags his ships along it, bypassing Southwark altogether and thus getting to the other side of the city. It's an absolutely brilliant idea, and it's also probably utter nonsense. Um, think about what's being proposed here, that Canute, a Danish prince with no previous record of his army carrying out acts of immense civil engineering, was able to carve a canal from roughly where Rotherhide is through the South Bank to Vauxhall, roughly a four-mile-long construction, and do this in a couple of days, and do this in the English countryside south of Southwark while also protecting his forces digging from attack by irregular hostile forces and under the watchful eye of the city itself. I, I, I don't think so. One historian called Ian Mansfield postulated that it was possible for Canute to get his ships around on the bridge, but without quite as much work being involved. I'll quote him directly, quote, South London is a very low-lying area, and despite some raised banks being constructed to protect the land from the river, it remained largely marshes and floodplains until being drained in the 18th and 19th century. Most of Rotherhide was certainly marsh, with Bermondsey and Rotherhide Ayats being the only notably dry land in the area. If the river were breached at Rotherhide and the low-lying land deliberately flooded, it would not be overtly difficult to imagine shallow-hulled boats being able to be rowed across Southwark and the Lambus Marshes to Vauxhall. Indeed, a number of now covered up rivers, such as the Earl Sluice or the Ephra, come close enough to each other to assist in the passage across South London. Unquote. I support Mansfield's hypothesis. It makes sense to me. Canute didn't build a canal, but he used the natural features of the land to allow him and his men flood some territory and drag his ships to the other side of London and Southwark. And then he used this to blockade the city. Because it says straight away in the chronicle, quote, Afterwards they trenched the city without, so that no man could go in or out, unquote. The siege of London had begun. Imagine the Londoners gazing out from their city at Canute's men digging their trenches. The city would have been properly surrounded for the first time in its history. The trenches would have prevented a land-based breakout and now Canute had ships on either side of London Bridge to prevent a river-based breakout. His intention is clear, isolate London. And he'd succeeded, but that wasn't enough. He apparently also wanted to still take the town. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says bluntly, quote, and often fought against it, but the citizens bravely withstood them, unquote. So, once again, a Danish army seems intent on taking London, and once again, the Londoners had defeated them. 
the ongoing score in the seemingly endless battle of the two groups would now be Viking 7, London 8 at this stage. Albeit including the caveat that Knut's forces are not technically Vikings, but we're just going to carry on with the scale. Isolated, besieged and under attack, what could London do? Well, the city had one ace in its hole. As the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, King Edmund had ere this gone out, unquote. Yes, Edmund Ironsides had gotten out before the forces of Canute could encircle London. So as the Londoners remained trapped behind their own walls, the city's one hope lay in their new aggressive king. And he didn't let them down. Edmund was fighting an insurgency campaign, like his ancestor Alfred supposedly did, and he had swiftly moved to Wessex, raised an army, and began a series of lightning battles. In time, King Ironsides, quote, collected he his force and went to London, all by north of the Thames and so out through Clayhanger, and relieved the citizens, driving the enemy to their ships, unquote. Canute had clearly left a garrison to lock down London, he wasn't there, but we see Edmund now liberate the city, driving the enemy to the ships. That's a significant term. Canute's men seemingly retreated, but they're still intact and possibly in good order. So he drove them off, but they left their trenches, jumped in the boats and sailed back down the river. Still, London was liberated by their king. Their covenant in him was justified. One can imagine not just the celebration, but the instant acquisition of new supplies and stores. London was liberated. Viking 7, London 9. Meanwhile, this war is carrying on, and Edmund was all about speed and movement. Quote, It was within two nights after this that the king went over at Brentford, where he fought with the enemy and put them to flight. But there were many of the English were drowned from their own carelessness. He went before the main army with the design to plunder, unquote. So, 48 hours after the liberation of London, Edmund Ironsides drove a garrison in Brentford away, clearing the ways towards the city. The description and the time frame makes me think that the Fjord of London would have joined them. To go on offensive so soon after a battle to liberate London means Ironside probably needed reinforcement, and London had the men and Brentford was nearby. So yes, I think Londoners were definitely involved in the Battle of Brentford, which was a win, so now the score is Viking 7, London 10. The drowning incident it mentioned sounds like, well, some of the force, and we can suggest maybe Londoners, were aiming for the ships. And the term given is that they had a design to plunder. But if London was involved, we could say maybe they wanted to prevent the Danes from escaping, hell-bent on revenge, maybe. Certainly the term many of the English were drowned suggests a miscalculation by somebody. Edmund's forces had been depleted again. He needed more men. So no sooner had he liberated the town, he left London and went west to raise another force. Canute, however, could not afford to ignore London. It was too important. Hence, quote, the enemy soon returned to London and beset the city without, and fought strongly against it, both by water and land." Unquote. So now within days, we have a second siege being enacted upon London. And clearly this one wasn't a waiting game. 
there is a series of attacks being launched. By land would mean they're attacking the walls of Southwark Burr and London itself. By water would suggest ships along the river attacking the bridge. We have no more details than that. But it sounds like London was now become the ferocious eye of the storm. As long as it maintained a garrison that could be used by Edmund, Canute could not afford to let it stand. We can only imagine the ferocity of those days and nights that followed, the Danes attacking London again and again, and the result, quote, the almighty God delivered them, unquote. London defeated the Danes again. London stood defiant again. The score is Viking 7, London 11. You have to understand why battles have been raised and fought against the walls and bridge of London. The true campaign, actually, that was going on was for the hearts and minds of the nobles of England. You see, Canute and Edmund had a dilemma. They could only win the war if they had the support of the rest of England. And this is what we often forget. So while we know Edmund's forces were smaller than Canute's, so much he's having to raise army after army in order to even take to the field, the real trick to winning this war was simply he who ever had the loyalty of the majority of the English nobility would ultimately triumph. And there were ominous signs for the Ironside. Back when London was being besieged the first time, Edmund had fought a massive two-day battle over in the west at a place called Shearston. Now against him had been the Danish forces led by Thorkild the Tall, but crucially, Included in the Danish forces was a sizable number of English turncoats and defectors, led by Ildeman Edric Striona, but he wasn't alone. Other notable English collaborators were now siding with Canute, several of whom were, surprisingly enough, related to Edmund. But as Canute's forces drove themselves fruitlessly against London Bridge and London's walls, there was a potential sense of the tide maybe turning. Canute left his garrison besieging London and took a large force back down the Thames to the River Orwell and then into the land leading to Ipswich, raiding as he went. Edmund suddenly launched an attack on the Danish and collaborator forces in Kent. And crucially, Ilderman Edric Strayona seems to have wavered in his support of the Dane and rejoined Edmund's side, with London resisting the Mercy and Ealdeman seemed like a good indicator as to the momentum shifting towards Ironsides. Maybe. In all the confusion, with London besieged, the residents would not have heard fully what was going on until it was all decided. You see, Edmund and Canute eventually led their armies together at the Battle of Assenden. Here, Canute had won a decisive victory, but crucially, Edmund had escaped. While many had been killed, and Edric Striona had returned back to Canute's side, his actions having helped the Dane win the battle, with Edmund free, the insurgency war could continue. But the first London would have heard about this is when they were told a truce had been established between the two men. Edmund Ironsides and Canute had come to an agreement. Ironsides was to rule his ancient ancestral birthland as King of Wessex, and Canute 
was to rule everywhere else as King of Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia and the five boroughs. When one of the two men died, the other would inherit the other's lands and the survivor's son would inherit a claim upon the whole of England. The war was over. Edmund had lost, but he'd also won enough to remain being King of Wessex. Canute had won, there's no other way to put it. He was now a legitimate king. And it should be noted that if you go back only a couple of years earlier, when his father originally invaded England, owning part of England was clearly the goal. The whole of England was kind of the stretch goal. But all of this would have immediately created a huge dilemma for London, because London, as long-term listeners know, was never a part of Wessex. It was a part of Mercia. And as such, when word came of the truce between Edmund and Canute, London would have been told, Canute was now their rightful king. Ah, that's a bit of a bugger, really. As 1016, this mad year, came towards its conclusion, there is a notable entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Canute's fleet gathered together and, quote, the army then went to their ships with the things they had taken, and the people of London made peace with them and purchased their security, whereupon they brought their ships to London and provided themselves winter quarters therein, unquote. And so, finally, a Danish invader was able to walk about the streets of London and not have people trying to stab him in the face. Canute had taken London, but not by force. London had not technically surrendered to him. They simply understood that Edmund would not try and defend them now. So, like they had when Edmund's father had sailed away to Normandy only a couple of years previously, they offered their new landlord a probable huge amount of money to buy forgiveness. And that was it. This was the last time a Scandinavian force would attack London. And it ends the ongoing silly scorecard I've been keeping. The final score, by the way. Vikings 8, London 11. And yet, for all of this, the year 1016 wasn't quite done with London just yet. On November the 30th that year, Edmund Ironsides, the dynamic and brilliant warrior king, died. Now, some say he was murdered, and I've read lurid descriptions of assassins firing crossbow bolts up his arse as he sat on the privy, but really no one knows the actual cause of death. It could have been from injuries sustained while fighting Canute, or a simple infection caused by one of them. In response to the death of Edmund Ironsides, Canute summoned the Witangemot to London, and there, in London, the nation finally, once and for all, elevated Canute as King of all England. The War of 1016 shows that Canute's conquest was not a simple thing. It was very touch and go, and crucial to it all had been London, the city that had defeated Canute's father twice, and clearly had an oversized role in the young prince's mind. 
Canute clearly feared the London garrison, as seen by the repeated attempts he made to blockade it and also to take the town, but it never fell. It resisted him until the very end. Canute's victory was based on basically three crucial factors. One, not invading until Ethelred and Edmund were at loggerheads. He chose the perfect time to invade. Two, the sheer luck of having Ethelred die during the invasion, which actually weakened Edmund's position, as it appears many nobles were kind of waiting to see who was going to win the fight before showing their full loyalty. And three, while Edmund was easily the better general of the two, Canute was easily the better strategist. Be that as it may, as 1016 finally ended, London had come to the end of an era. A new Danish king was now in charge. And hey, at least that would mean no more Viking attacks, right? London stood, battered, bloodied, and above all, worried. While it had paid for its safety, as the winter of 1016 became 1017, Danish warriors walked the streets of London and occupied it. What if this Canute turned on them? Was there going to be a price to pay for the resistance they had showed him and his father? And how high would that price be? And I'm going to end it there. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please note there is a free script of this uh, episode of the podcast, which I'll be putting up on the website Imja within the next four or five days. And usually the scripts go up four or five days after the episode and they contain maps and pictures and hopefully interesting things that will help you read along. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give it a like or a five-star review or say something nice about it as this will impress the likes of Spotify and Apple and others and they'll go, oh, we should pay more attention to that and hopefully I'll get a few more listeners. I'd like to also thank everybody who has supported the podcast so far. I've had eight months of continuous growth and you have no idea how much it means to me. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It really is kind of awesome. All right, enough of that. Coming next week, chapter 35, The Purge. All right, see ya. Thank you.